Well, what's the crack? Welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Charlotte Regan. I hope you enjoy this extract from uh, an absolute classic Irishman Abroad episode with Imelda May. To hear the full hour-long interview and more deep-dive chats with hundreds of the greatest Irish people ever to have lived and Imelda's performance in our live online streamed TV show an Irishman Abroad Comedy Club, come on over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. It only takes a minute and for less than a five or a month you'll gain access to everything. That's hundreds of hours of listening, entertainment and inspiration and you can walk around with a spring in your step of knowing that you helped this series survive and grow through these difficult times. Speaking of difficult times, our chosen charity partner is Jigsaw.ie. If you don't know Jigsaw, they are a youth mental health charity like no other. They've been working for years back in Ireland to help the young people there be equipped and learn the skills, the mental health stuff that they'll need to survive in life. And since the pandemic, they've seen a surge in demand for their one-to-one and group services. They have a phone line, they do seminars, and before this, they went into communities and set up workshops. They've moved it all online to jigsaw.ie, and I urge you to go over and check it out. Maybe they can help you. Maybe they can help someone in your life, or maybe through a small donation, you can help them. That's jigsaw.ie, the chosen charity partner of an Irishman abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and learn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Melda May, it's brilliant to have you on the Irishman abroad. I have to say, you you were you were on like the original list the first time around we first started programming the show, and uh, it's it's taken a while, but you're just so busy all the time. It's mad, yeah. Uh, and I felt that uh, you know the planets align as this Palladium show approached, and yeah. I thought I was going to get to see it, and then I was gutted to miss it. How was it? It went really well, really well. It was a, it was a, it was a lot of work, and it became a heartfelt project. You know, and mm. um, it started off as a gig or a concept. It was a friend of mine, Leo Green, asked me to do a Van Morrison, a nod to Van Morrison. You know, Imelda May sings Van Morrison vibe. And I, I thought I didn't want to do that because Van is such a god. It just seemed like a huge task. And I said, I'll do some. But because they had they had basically it's a, a thing where they have Beverly Knight did um, Stevie Wonder and yeah. somebody else. Did, and I said, but every, you know, a lot of people, um, if they want to see Van Morrison, they go and see him. Yeah. Big shoes to fill. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. You've said it. And so. 
I decided to do, I came, came up with different ideas and everybody I was naming as influences were Irish and Leo said, why don't you call it Celtic Soul? Because I wanted mm-hmm. to do kind of Irish rock and roll and punk and blues, which there's so much of, rather than f- go down the folk, you know, trad route, which is beautiful, but we're known for that. And I often, during my travels, people think that, you know, Rory Geller is American, the undertones are English. and So I kind of wanted to, set the record straight. Yeah, plant the flag. Let yes. people know. Yeah. yeah. And it went really well and I'm happy with it. Sorry, that was a really long no, answer. There's no, there's no <laughs> problem. There's absolutely, there's never been a problem with long answers on this show. If anything, that's all we want. I, I just looked at it, I obviously observed it through that keyhole that we now view people's lives and Instagram and Instagram stories. I and, know. You know, it, it doesn't put across the Palladium as a venue. I've been lucky enough to perform on the stage once Mm -hmm. and it's something I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I do remember feeling like I was in the telly (laughs) when I was doing it. It's a gorgeous Does it stop being weird is my question. Do you find yourself on stage in those situations or let's say on Jay Leno or Conan or performing on Strictly Come Dancing and having to shake yourself out of how strange this life is that you've made for yourself? Yes and no. I mean, Strictly was weird because mainly for me, like, I don't watch it. I don't watch a lot of television anyway. I don't have time. But I had recorded a song with Smuggy Robinson and it was, I hadn't met him and he sent his part for us to do this duet. He re-recorded, obviously he, he's recorded before his own, own song, but he re-recorded it and I put my vocals down in I think it was in Madrid or Barcelona and so I hadn't met him so when they said would you we'd love you to I got a note from his management saying you know Smokey really wants you know to do it live as he would he's a phenomenal performer and they said we've got Strictly would you do it with him on Strictly so I met him a sound check. Oh so God. for me, that was more about meeting and singing with Smokey Robinson than it was about Strictly. Mm. Because, you know, I I get Strictly's a big TV programme, but I'm it was all about Smokey for me. So I was falling into his famous blue eyes <laughs> while we were singing, you know, his biggest hit, you know, and um, um, take a good look at you, you know, oh my God, it's Smokey Robinson. And I totally, I don't think I even noticed all the dancers. (laughs) But for for me, for gigs and for venues such as the Palladium that you know are historical venues musically, um, for me, everything kind of fizzles into the background once you connect with your audience. To me, it's just a basic connection between me a song, lyrics, an audience, a vibe. And you just have this, that's what it's all about for me, is that connection of that beautiful moment where we all get along and we all understand and we all talk the same language Mm -hmm. just uh, um, for, you know, two hours or whatever. And that's, I think, all the lights and all the glitz and all the glamour of it fades into the background once the connection gets gone. I think most performers that love it and and feel like I am I do this for free. I have no option 
this is what I do, this is who oh, I, I am. Oh, I can't not do it. Exactly. Yes. And all performers of that mind yeah. have that moment and share exactly what you've described. And I've shared it on this show many times. Mm. I love asking them, when was the first time that you felt that connection? Do you recall maybe the one that sticks out in your mind as the first stage you stood on where you closed your eyes, let it go wow. and came off going, wow. that was different. What a fact. I've never been asked that question before. What a great question. Um, I performed a lot as a kid as well in a local drama group and I remember getting the bug for it then. I loved the excitement of all the drama, I suppose. I remember having that in Brussels where I started as a teenager. Closing my eyes, you know, and yeah, getting lost was definitely there. That was very, very early on. I was only 16 or 17. And having a sense of losing where you are, losing uh, almost outer body experience. You just go somewhere else for a minute. It's it's very strange. I think I think a lot of people try and recreate that off stage because it's it's addictive. It's intoxicating and you want more. Um and I think that's why a lot of people try and relive that. And I don't think you can. It's like it's kind of like the euphoria of being in love or uh, it, it's a it's it is wonderful it, or hypnotism. I don't know what it is, but it's it's um it feels out of body experience, and I had that in Brussels. And then in a little club, um, it was a jazz cafe on Westmoreland Street, and um no Parliament Street. It was a friend of mine had a little jazz club, and I did a gig there every Wednesday, and it was my first band. I was in other people's bands, but I got my first band of musicians together and I remember I used to perf- try and perform the same set with different musicians it was this concept I had I had to have it because I couldn't get the same musicians <laughs> and I couldn't learn loads of different songs <laughs> so I tried doing that and I get people coming back and I remember getting that a lot there mm. It seems it seems funny then and I think uh, you've, you've spoken about this before that mm. it was never a career path was never something that was presented to you as, you know, there's an industry where you could be creative and, and do this. I just think it's it's strange that you're having this feeling, like you say, that's so intense and so uh, impossible to fake mm. and you couldn't find it anywhere else. No. I've heard you laugh about it as well. How yeah. did you not connect the dots that this is what you should be doing? It's kind of funny nearly that you were doing all these shows. I was shows. already doing it. <laughs> And, and wondering what you do with your life. And then I went to art college because I thought, I don't, I like art and art history. I'll, I'm good at art. I'll, and I went to art college. I think every, it's it's very um, stereotypical. I think every musician went to art college <laughs> at some stage. I went to, uh, it was a foundation course up in Ballyfermot, Ballyer. And it was, uh, and, I, and I was skipping college to do the gigs. You know, and then I wasn't getting my projects ready on time because I was doing, and I still didn't. <laughs> it took me. I must. Be, I must be a bit slow on the mark, but it just wasn't presented to me mm-hmm. as a career option, and I don't think it still is enough. No. 
um, or anything in the arts. It's all academic led. You know, even set design, you know, stage design, electrical engineer, lighting engineer. Yeah, or this guy out here. Yeah, doing doing the the sound sound on on what we're doing. And it's a huge, huge um, industry. Um, Mm -hmm. It goes right through into, you know, drama and acting and screenwriting and playwriting. None of that, I think, is given enough. It's kind of, in schools, it's often given over as a, you know, the arts, it's, that's a nice thing to do on the side. And if there's any cuts to be made, let's cut them there because they're not as important. However, almost everybody goes home and on the way home, they listen to the radio. Mm-hmm. When they get in, on. they'll put the TV on. They might put a movie on. They'll go out to the cinema. They go to the theatre. All the things that you do, they're, almost none of them were given to you as an option. Most pe- And that's why I love the industry, the entertainment industry, because most people are in it because they've stumbled upon it or they found a love for it or they fought to be here. Mm. And it kind of, most people are really passionate about it because they've had to grasp and claw their way, you know, to to, to do what it yeah, is they love and they love it, it mm. including yourself, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, my experience of coming here is what precipitated this show mm. being created. And you know, as I said at the start, you were top of the list because, you know, for so many reasons, Imelda. But I'm honoured. <laughs> well, a big part of it is how how important going away was mm. to you, to creating your creative life, to informing you uh, spiritually mm. in terms of the time you spent working in a nursing home mm. here. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that first time over here, because the the trip in 2003 is kind of heralded as when you came. But this 1998 trip is probably the one that. Oh, that's when I moved over. Yeah. Um, And uh, it was an adventure just, you know, I was. I was just. uh, I was at that age, I was young and just wanted to see the world and have fun. And there was no. There was a, a lot of places in Dublin were shutting down a lot of the music venues or getting more, becoming more business-like. And there was, there was a lot of, without boring it, there was loads of undercutting going on. Bands saying they'll do things for cheaper and then getting really bad way. It was just, it just wasn't a good vibe um, where a lot of bands had fought to get a decent wage or cut the door or something. And mm. then, Someone um, had offered to do it for less. For stupid amounts where they might have had a record company and they could afford to do that, mm-hmm. where people were trying to make their living off it, just couldn't do, you, you can't pay a whole band for 50 quid for a five hour gig, that kind of thing. You're like, well, that's the end of that then, you know. So you, if you, you couldn't d- get the gig, someone else was doing it for that. You think, well, I, yeah. I, I can't do that. So I wanted adventure and I, I, I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. And I think it was the best thing for me. Um, if I wanted the work, there were other people who could do it. There were many other people who could do it. Um, people I didn't know, because in Dublin I kind of knew everyone. And it was a little more cutthroat, which I liked. I liked a lot. I like improving myself. I like putting myself in the deep end. Still do. I like to approach thing, do things that, that are, are uh, maybe a little intimidating, you know. I like to scare myself. Um, because it makes me work hard. Um, I think it's good to get out of your comfort zone. 
I think it's really unhealthy to stay comfortable with what you do because it means you're not moving forward and you're, you're not growing or learning. Mm. So that's my continuous thing is to write once I've done something, what's next? What's next? What's harder? You know? Yeah, and you kind of don't realise you're cosy until you go into yeah. a place that isn't your comfort zone, right? So you probably didn't realise exactly how cosy Dublin was until you arrived over here. No. It and was there's a hundred people lined up to take the spot that you yeah. like. Yeah, it was brilliant. Because I, I love a bit of competition, you know. Um, you know, gets me, gets the little scrapper out in me, you know. I'll <laughs> go for it as much as I can. So um, tell, tell me about that time, because that's, as we say, you haven't fully connected the dots yet at that point, right? Mm. You're working. I still l- haven't. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about the tell me about the jobs that you were working at that time, because I mean, I I did read the interview with Mary Egan you did mm. some time ago mm. about how important that was in informing you and asking questions of yourself and understanding where you stood with everything, because some some of that work was pretty intense. Yeah, I mean, I did. At home as well, I did everything to to try and um, make things work musically. I wasn't I was wasn't making enough. Most people in music or in any kind of in the arts or self employed will relate to that. Um, so I was having to. I worked in a laundrette at one point. I worked in a garage. I worked in. A, I did about ten years of waitressing on and off, to the point that I was training people in. And I remember thinking, oh, dear God, I'm getting good at this. This is not a good sign. <laughs> I'm doing it a long time. <laughs> and um, I did a bit of silver service and face painting and I was a cleaner. And then uh, I remember I was in this restaurant and somebody said, you, you, you're, you're too good at the, you're too You're minding everybody. And she said, there's a position up at the local nursing home. So I applied without the qualifications and they needed people so desperately they said we can train you on the job so I said sure and I went into that and I I loved it I absolutely I I loved it I loved the connections I suppose that I made with people I loved caring for them I loved the honour of caring I'd been allowed into somebody's private space and I took that as a sacred experience I know they're big words to use and they're big, it's a big, if somebody's dying and it is an honour to take care of them in their last moments, I don't think there's any other way to describe that. It's Mm. quite intense and it's one of the most personal, personal things you can do. Um, And it is, it's a, it's an intense moment in someone's life. And death, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's the be all and birth and death, the two. Um, it's just, a, it's a totally other, other space. It's spiritual. And um, I, I felt very honoured to do that. And I did that for almost three years. And in between I was doing gigs. And I suppose it's given me a lot to write about all those things, you know, all those experiences. And, um, but while I was doing that, every job I did was shift work and it was all based around gigs yeah. and and that's the, that's I wouldn't I did weekday work so that I had the weekends free and I could pay me rent and then when I got my own band together I called up an agent 
and said, give me everything you've got. And I sang at every wine party, the opening of a barge, the opening of a <laughs> toilet. Um, I'm not even joking. A supermarket wing. And I just did all of those where you ignore the person in the background. And that was to pay for me gigs because every gig I did cost me at least, I think it was about 500 quid at the time. This is another thing that I read. And this is, you know, it's great that you've brought us to, to there. Mm. And you tell it so well because that, you know, that period, like you say, it gave you so much to write about in the mm. same way as when you're dad says to you in the car and you're heartbroken that mm. now you can sing the blues in the mm. same way there's a depth to your understanding of life as a result of that nursing yes, home 100% because of it the these jobs well, you can singing see, you, you can see sorry you, you can mm. you can see what's important and what's not important it, it gets it gets rid of the it just gets rid of the bullshit yeah the froth yeah yeah yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Not at all, uh, because that piece that you take us to, these kind of jobs that I think a lot of creative people will find themselves, like you, I meet a lot of people going, I really want to quit my thing so that I can do my, you know, my creativity. And mm. my advice is to keep your job as long as possible and, you know, take whatever nixers you can creatively that's what these were. These were to pay the band, as I understand it. Yes, and I always paid my band. Yeah, so, the, so the, the thing that I read was that you were booking the B&Bs for the band when you were on the yeah. road and uh, that you were trying to find £20 ones and yes. the lads would be saying, can we get better rooms? Well, I remember I'd give the, uh, um, so I was booking the the van and booking the gigs, trying to get the gigs, ringing around. Um, I was, I'd been in other people's bands. I was a singer with a swing band. And, and so I kind of used the contacts from them and I'd ring around saying, listen, I have my own band now. And um, can you give me like a Wednesday night or Monday night, anything you've got. So I'd made contacts and relationships with people. And uh, they'd say, sure. So I'd, I'd have to try and work work out how I was going to do that and um, I was wanting to record as well and I couldn't afford to record so it was just everything I was doing was was to make that happen and so I was doing all this work I was doing double shifts um, in the Norrison home back to back I was absolutely wrecked and I was getting up before that and doing flyers with my friend Lynn Bohr Bosborough's wife she her dad was putting out flyers you know the ones that you hate going through your door junk mail <laughs> yeah. that was me I had my backpack on putting it through I was like five six in the morning before I'd do my double shift all to do gigs at the weekend and pay everybody and I absolutely I, I loved it because there was no way on you know that if you were getting paid a, by a fiver on the door that you're going to be able to pay for everybody's um, accommodation and the van and the petrol and their wages so that's the only way I could make it work and I remember as people start coming to the gigs as it got busier and I started to make more money I was saying stick with me I promise you it will get better and then when I would get enough money I'd say okay would you like would you like someone else to uh, like a road I can afford an extra driver or would you like better accommodation and I'd give them a choice of what I could afford and they'd say, dear God, better accommodation, please. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then we'd get to that. And then when, when that would be fine and then something else, I'd say, OK, do you want better gear or a better 
a like an, a later flight than yeah. the five in the morning or whatever. And so they choose what they wanted. And it's a side of you that I don't think people are aware of, because mm. when you appear, as they say, an overnight success after all this work and mm. all these years, you appear fully formed with a style that's all your own. It's so distinctive. People remember it the moment they see you. Jules Holland is the introduction to the world for a lot of people mm. with you. You don't see the the, the graft, the graft, or the, well, the paddling of the swan underneath the I water. I worked with the Jules stuff as well. I knew I had to get a strong image. I knew I had to stand out. That wasn't an accident, you know. I sat down, and how it came about was. But I thought uh, I could refine this and get this stronger. It wasn't. I didn't make it up out of thin air. But I was kind of doing that thing anyway. And I thought if I hone this down. That if I got a logo and, and I came up with this logo and a lot of bands do that, you mm. know, you think I need to I, I need to get an image, I need to get a logo. Why, why don't we make a T-shirt out of it? And, you know, you stick with it. A lot of bands do that. They what's, know what's the thinking there? Like, why? Why? Why is that such a well, how a are you going to stand out from anyone else? How is anybody going to remember you from anyone else? You have to. There is a certain amount of um you know, you have to have a business head on you. Art rules number one. Um, but once you, you're fully um, engaged in that and you know that art is, is the number one, then how do you get that art out there? How do you get people to see it? If you, if, if, if you believe in what you're doing, you think, I really want to get this out there. But for me, I remember thinking, I want a really good chance or a good shot at this. And if it doesn't go well after a bloody good chance, then I'll rethink what I'm doing. Um, I'd still do music, but I'd, I'd rethink the whole thing, you know. Mm. Um, but I could feel things were moving and when I got the Jules Holland um, support slot before I went on his TV mm-hmm. show I went on the road with him and that was through one of the little gigs that I had an agent of his was there and it was up in Sheffield it was a little jazz club he gave me the slot before another band on a Tuesday night and then someone was there and blah blah and when I did the gigs with Jules I thought okay I need to use my head with this so if he has an audience of 2,000, if I get, you know, 10%, if I get 5% of that, that's 100 more people that were that would come and see me that weren't aware of what I did the night before. So that's a, a small fan base from the ground up. So I rang around venues. So I looked at where his tour was and I'd see which town we were in and I rang around venues in that town to see could I get a gig the following month or two months or whatever. Uh, later and then I printed out and hand I did handwritten ones and printed ones from a, a local um, photocopying place and I couldn't afford to do one each so I'd do four and I'd sit with the scissors cutting them up and and then uh, I put on the the seat of every um, in every theatre I asked Jules was, was it okay if I did that and he said yeah and I put a flyer on every seat saying we're in your local town in a month's time or two weeks time in this venue and I'd, and I'd mention it over and over and over again from the stage and then the next venue we went to I would do the same there and say okay we're in this pub on the whatever and to get I thought if I get a small amount of people and it worked so every time we turn up a venue I had that amount of people I had flyers out all over like I said that I was sitting cutting literally putting on the seat in the theatre before I was on to open for Jules five minutes before I'd be up the very 
back of the thing up in the gods trying to get flyers out in time to put me lipstick on and jump on stage, do the gig and mention this gig. And they turned up. They turned up the following month to do a gig in that town. And I'd always make sure to get a place that was smaller than I thought we could fill. And What's the thinking there? So that it so that it was a hot ticket? So it was a bloody hot hottest <laughs> ticket in town. And there's always a better vibe when it's packed. Yeah, of course, yeah. And more so uncomfortable I'd, the I'd try and get the smallest venue I could, pack it out, and then the next time we'd be in that town, um, people would be quicker to buy the ticket. There's there's something with that I see in again and again in entertainment, whether it's music or comedy or whatever it is, there's a certain amount of pride that some people have where they don't they don't feel comfortable doing what you're describing they don't they feel like that that's somehow a step down or a diminishing of what they're doing whereas there it is that's just the beginning to hear almost 60 minutes more of this conversation and hundreds more full-length Irish Man Abroad episodes and shows join us on patreon.com forward slash Irish Man Abroad help support the creation and continuation of this series for years to come for less than a five or a month you'll gain access to all our episodes shows live events and for a limited time only everyone who signs up in the first two weeks of august will get my brand new stand-up comedy special notions 11 shot by my favorite director mike donnelly in vicar street in march 2020 that's hundreds of hours of entertainment inspiration and laughter for less than the price of one of your fancy coffees over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. I want to say thanks to my ultrasound producer, as always, Brian Connolly, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And finally, to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw. Jigsaw.ie are a youth mental health charity that is changing and saving lives across all communities back in Ireland. Now, more than ever, they could do with your support. Go to Jigsaw.ie to see their great work, get some help with the young people in your life, or maybe through a donation, you can help them.